Welcome to the Michigan Out of Doors podcast. I'm your host, Drew Youngdike, with our co-host, Logan Schultz. And the podcast is brought to you by MUCC, Michigan United Conservation Clubs, and our on-the-ground program, Hunters, Anglers, and Trappers Volunteering for Fish and Wildlife Habitat on Public Land. And that's supported by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, Wildlife Habitat Grants, the Saginaw Bay Watershed Initiative Network, and Outdoor Life's Open Country Program. Here's the show. Episode 21, Basking in the Tears of Anti-Hunting Hippies. Now it's making podcasting great again. We're not, you can't bask in tears. Ba- like, tears are liquid. You can't bask in liquid. You can bathe in them. We could, we could be... <laughs> We could be basting this podcast, which would be ironic because hippies don't bathe. Um, Let's we could say that we're basting this podcast with the tears of anti-hunters, like a big greasy turkey. Yeah, <laughs> I, we are already off to a strong, a strong start. Do not edit any of this. Probably gonna edit all of it. Episode twenty-one. Welcome to See, episode. <laughs> welcome to episode twenty-one of the Michigan Out of Doors podcast. The MUCC office is just about to break for the Christmas and holiday season. When we return, it will be 2016. So we thought that today we would bring in the big chief. Okay. Logan Schultz, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> Seriously, you didn't turn off your ringtone? <laughs> this is amateur hour. This is, a, this is a professional environment that we're in here. Using that term pretty liberally. Welcome to episode. I swear to <laughs> I'm going to interrupt every intro so we cannot edit it. <laughs> you just should keep going because we've got three intros on the podcast that aren't getting edited out now. Welcome to the <laughs> Michigan Out of Doors <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Episode 21 Making with. Podcasting <laughs> great again. <laughs> really, really great. Really. Really great. The greatest podcast <laughs> in the history of humanity. Dude, can you please what turn that off? What the heck? It's my voicemail. It, it's, we don't care turn, what it is. Put it on silent. Every other adult in the room's managed to get through three intros without their freaking phone lighting up. All right. For real now. New intro. No, starting from scratch. We're not editing any of that. You don't have to edit it. It's still rolling. I haven't touched anything, but we're starting a new intro. Welcome to the Michigan Out of Doors podcast. I'm your host, Drew Youngdike. We have in the studio with us Logan, the Bear Slayer, Gunnut Schultz. And we have MUCC Executive Director Dan Eichinger. I don't get some cool title like Logan does. He's the Bear Slayer. and I'm Dan. Just... Are Dan. you not MUCC <laughs> Executive Director? No, we can give him a nickname. Dan Whitebread. That's the best you can do? That's yeah. terrible. Yeah, damn white bread. What are you trying to imply with that? You are white bread. Like Wonder Bread. Very plain. <laughs> Is not executive director of MUCC one of the coolest titles you're going to get? Fact. Fact. That's true. All right, there we go. And the reason for that is MUCC is an awesome organization made up of awesome members like you. So it's right before the Christmas holiday season. We're about to break. When we return, it will be 2016. So we thought this would be a great chance with Dan and Logan in the room to take a look back at what MUCC has been doing over the course of 2015 and try to put that in perspective a little bit. So 
in a little bit, what we're going to do is basically go over all of the public acts and the pieces of legislation that MUCC passed this year, because that's one thing that we pride ourselves at MUCC is that we pass legislation, we get things done, and when our members bring us a problem, we take care of it. Um, But before we get into that, Dan, you received an interesting piece of mail today. I received a piece of hate mail today. Let's be (laughs) real clear about what we got. And just just so you folks know, this piece of mail was not on the itinerary for this podcast, but it is so great that we have to discuss it. So, Dan, who did you receive this piece of mail from? Uh, somebody who calls themselves Dr. Izar Isha Mazur. All anybody really needs to know is that it was like on a piece of craft paper and the postmark was from San Francisco. So... I think everyone can draw their own conclusions about what this letter said and who it was from. The outside of the envelope did say did also say something about yoga. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with yoga itself, but this this letter had not surprising the guy from Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Where, by the way, the anti-deer cult people had a quote-unquote protest. That was cute. It was cute. There's like three people there. But this letter, I I can't let it go because despite numerous misspellings and grammatical errors, Mm -hmm. it was handwritten. It was barely legible. It went all over the place. I could follow it only in the sense that I understood the words that were written. What they were trying to string together with those words, I couldn't get at. Basically, it was just a piece of anti-hunting hate mail that threatened very mean things to the members of MUCC. Well, it said that because we wanted to have a wolf hunt in the state of Michigan, that this individual and his yoga army were going to eventually take over the country and put people like us in jail because we actually eat meat and shower and don't wear things made out of hemp. So So we're crafting a reply, of course, where we're going to include pictures of us eating meat. Not making things out of hemp. Yes, (laughs) marinated in the tears of anti-hunters, as Dan so succinctly put a little bit earlier today. I did did say that. So that was fun. It's just fun. I'm sorry. It's fun to make fun of anti-hunters who cannot spell. Well, the thing, I mean, the thing of it is, is that, you know, I think it's something that, you know, we as the hunting public need to understand. I mean, this person represents sort of that, the fringe, obviously that fringe element. Um, and a lot of what... Um, we've talked about on this podcast a lot of what we talk about within the hunting community is trying to appeal to the 80% of people who are uh, non-hunters but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're anti-hunters and the way that we do that is by talking about conservation, talking about utilization of those wildlife resources whether it's to feed our family or uh, what have you Um, but yeah and then you know you encounter uh, somebody or you get a piece of mail where someone is actually trying to tell you that the world is flat when we all know that it isn't. Um, it's it's it was an amusing reminder of the folks that we're battling against. There, there's something though 
that when you get a piece of mail like that and you realize how out there the person is that sent that, your first thought is that this person is a representative of that community. Where that's instructive, though, is we don't want to be that person for our side. You don't want to be and, and represent the rest of the hunting community as being as as crazy and out of touch as this person was making the quote-unquote yoga community. You know, that, that person, I'm sure that 90% of the people who, like, do yoga or whatever are cringing at the thought of this person claiming to represent them. Um, that's what that's something that drives me nuts when people go overboard and get crazy on our side and claim to represent our side with the same amount of ridiculousness. Because as, as you're talking we're always trying to appeal to that 80% in the middle. You know, there might be 10 to 20% that hunt. There might be 5 to 10% that, you know, really don't want us to hunt at all. But that 70 to 80% in the middle is who basically we're all jacking for their hearts and souls, I guess. And if we show this letter, and we will show this letter, don't don't get me wrong, you will see this letter. It will be on social media. It's hilarious. It, it's hilarious. We're going to share it. And we're going to share it, frankly, to show how ridiculous the anti-hunting fringe is. Um, but we don't want to give them those examples. You know? I think that we're, you know, I, you know, when I think about the Humane Society of the United States, Defenders of Wildlife, uh, Center for Biological Diversity, you know, all these sort of serial abusers of rational thought, we have, um, you know, we have folks on the other side of the table who are just, like, fundamentally dishonest. I mean, in order for them to be able to make a point, uh, they have to lie about who hunters are and what hunters do. In order for HSUS to raise money, they have to lie to people about where their money goes and how their money gets spent instead of, you know, telling the truth, which is that you put your money in a black hole that ends up um, that ends up in Washington, D.C., in the pockets of some very, very, very bad people. Um, the hunting community, we don't have to do that. You know, we can be very proud of telling our story um, talking about who we are, uh, the contributions that hunters make to conservation, uh, that we're the ones who stand in the breach for wildlife, we're the ones who advocate for habitat protection, we're the ones who, who advocate for clean air and clean water and protecting wetlands. Uh, we've always been doing that. That's always who we are. Uh, so, you know, we're always, I think, kind of fighting from the high ground uh, when all of our opponents... Uh, have to lie and misdirect and mislead people about who they are and what they do, uh, you know, and they have to be the ones who soothe, say, well, we're not really again, you know, we're not going to take away deer hunting per se, um, because they know they can't, you know, they can't attack, they can't attack, attack us directly, because uh, everybody knows that they're full of crap. Um, so it's just interesting, you know, you get a letter like this in the mail and it just sort of reminds you of, you know, some of the truly crazy, crazy individuals that are out there. Um, who just have a thoroughly cracked worldview about how nature works um, and about the role that humans play in nature. You know, I had a, a conversation with a reporter a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about HSUS's position on delisting of wolves. And it's, and it's the same thing. It's so fundamentally dishonest. They don't take, a, take an honest look 
at the facts on the ground and what the biology is. The biology is wolves are thoroughly recovered. There's over three times more of them at their minimum winter count in Michigan than their minimum recovery level. We said when they hit 200, they're recovered. They're at you know well over 600, even at their lowest count in the middle of the winter. That's three times more than the recovery level. They're recovered. The anti-hunters are not taking a look at, okay, we're going to look objectively at what does the science say? Okay, it says they're recovered, therefore they should be off the endangered species list. The way they look at it is we don't want to see them ever hunted, so therefore we will lie and say that they're not recovered because if they are recovered, then they may be hunted. So they're being fundamentally dishonest, and they're pretty open about the fact that the only reason they're saying that they're not recovered is they don't want them to be hunted. Well, that that's ridiculous. That's That's not taking a look at the actual facts on the ground not taking a look at the actual science and saying, okay, this is what the science says, therefore we will base our decisions off that. What they're doing is saying, here's the end result that we want, and so we'll just work backward and make up whatever we want to try to support that position. I mean, these people are thoroughly disinterested in recovering endangered species. Thoroughly disinterested in doing that. And the reason that they don't care about recovering endangered species is the reason they don't care about protecting you know, wildlife and making use, you know, making use of wildlife and wildlife resources is because, you know, once they can't talk about wolves being on the endangered species list anymore, their value as a fundraising tool is gone. There's no value um, for them being able to send uh, hate mail about hunters to rile up people to send in a check. Um, There's nothing for them to talk about saying that if you don't send us $25 or $100, or whatever it might be, so that we can keep this animal on the endangered species list. They will become extinct if you don't do that. Um, you know, this is a business enterprise for them. It's not about wildlife. It's not about animals. Um, it is about furthering, you know, fur- furthering their very craven economic interests. These people have absolutely no interest in animals or wildlife whatsoever. Because if they did, they'd stand right alongside of us, shoulder to shoulder, uh, in protecting habitat complexes and protecting. Uh, wild places in recognizing the value of managed wildlife species through hunting, through trapping, through fishing opportunities, but they don't do that, and they never will. I want to shift gears a little bit to an ironically similar situation where economic interest is ignoring science in order to basically further that economic interest. Um, we have a really serious situation going on in Michigan right now with the emergence of chronic wasting disease. Mm. Um, you know, we've had we've had a few of them here. We, I think that our state has, frankly, been excellent in being very vigilant about keeping chronic wasting disease from spreading. Um, you know, the, the hunters have done a good job of bringing in quite a few uh, deer to be checked in the core area. Um, we've been testing. Um, we implemented very reasonable but necessary procedures in the core CWD area. Our neighbors to the west um, in Wisconsin recently just relaxed the rules on fencing for smaller captive servant facilities. Keep in mind a captive servant facility tested positive for CWD within 25 miles of the western upper peninsula border in wisconsin and there have been 29 escapes from captive servant facilities in wisconsin this past year 
So here we have a situation where Wisconsin has CWD that is growing almost unchecked. There are counties in Wisconsin where over 40% of the mature bucks test positive for CWD. That means almost half of the mature bucks in those counties you cannot eat. So they have CWD. They have CWD confirmed at some of these captive servant facilities. They have 29 documented escapes from captive servant facilities. And their solution to that is to basically say, don't worry, you can opt out of the CWD testing program. Um, there's There's been a really troubling trend of some editorials and some quote-unquote hunting personalities trying to debunk CWD. And this really is the same thing that we're talking about with the anti-hunters of trying to reach a conclusion and then ignoring the science below or making up science to support the predetermined conclusion. The science says CWD kills deer. It kills cervids. In Wyoming, where they've had it for years and years, they're looking at, I think they just came out and documented a 19% decline in the mule deer herd annually due to CWD. It's a real issue. It's one that we don't want in Michigan. But some of the things that have to be done to contain CWD inconvenience people. We can't bait in certain areas. Um, in, in other states, you might have to beef up fencing facilities or beef up testing at captive servant facilities. Well, instead of saying, okay, CWD is an issue. We want to stop and contain CWD. Therefore, we're going to implement these procedures that will help contain CWD. They're basically saying, we don't want to be inconvenienced by these procedures, so we're going to pretend that CWD is not an issue. Um, to me, that's the same thing. Um, it's ignoring science to reach a predetermined economic conclusion. And it's doing that at the expense of our wild deer herd in Michigan. And frankly, that just pisses me off. I think that we're going to continue to see, you know, that, I mean, that's a conflict that's in play with the whole discussion about net pen aquaculture, which we've talked about on the podcast before, where, you know, to what extent is someone's right to use our natural resources for their, to further their economic interests, and in so doing, you know, damage the quality, you know, damage the quality of that resource. You know, to what extent? To what extent are we willing to allow that to happen? And I think that, you know, when we think about, you know, you think about Michigan, you think about iconic wildlife species. The first, certainly, the first animal that should pop into everybody's mind is the white-tailed deer. Um, you know, when we talk about what define, you know, what defines the state of Michigan, the first thing that anybody you know, should think about our, our Great Lakes, which were assaulted during the, you know, the middle portion of the last century. And it's only, I think, probably within the last 45, you know, 40, 40 or 45 years where we've seen, you know, measurable improvements in water quality, which have enabled the sport fishery to thrive um, at the same time that this, the lakes have had to withstand, you know, dramatic changes because of invasive species like zebra mussels and quagga mussels and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, yet we've got, you know, we've got some some folks who think that, you know, putting net pen aquaculture in the Great Lakes, um, even though the, 
fish disease concerns are real, even though the affluent nutrient issues are real, uh, even though the escapement issues are real. Um, also that, and this is the, these are the numbers that MSU tossed around, you know, also that we could add $4.3 million to Michigan's annual gross domestic product. So we're going to sacrifice a $4.3 billion sport fishery that supports tens of thousands of jobs in the state of Michigan so that we can have Great Lakes net pen aquaculture, which at best is going to support maybe 40 or 50 jobs. Well, I think the estimate was like 17 jobs. 17 jobs. Yeah, even, 17. Even yeah. And, and add potentially $4.3 million to Michigan's annual gross domestic product. I mean... These are really clear, simple policy choices that, uh, you know, for us, they seem easy. Well, it's, it's easy because here, here's the deal. We hunt and fish. If you hunt and fish, your first priority should be for the species for which you hunt and fish. So when you have a question about should we let one person make a little bit of money by damaging the fisheries of the state, the clear answer is no, that's not good for the fish. If the question is, should we let a small group of people make a little money by endangering the wild deer of the state? The answer is no, that's not good for the deer. So when it comes down to what should we do in a given situation, if you care about hunting and fishing, then the answer should be what's best for the fish, what's best for the wildlife for which I hunt. That's where we come down. So it should be no surprise where MUCC comes down on these issues. We like to hunt. We like to hunt deer. If something's bad for the deer, we're going to be against it. We like to fish. If there's a question, if it's bad for the fish, we're going to be against it. But we're not just against stuff. We're for a lot of stuff. And because we're for a lot of stuff, we got a lot of stuff done this year. Yeah, we did. So let's, uh, let's move into that and talk about some of the laws that that were passed this year that really came from MUCC individual members and the ideas that they came up with. Um, so starting off this year, I think there were really two themes, and I wrote about this for uh, Michigan Outdoor News. It was hunting access and ethical hunting. Those were the two themes, I think, that came out of a lot of the, the legislation that was passed this year that affects hunting and fishing. So... As far as hunting access, the first thing that was really passed is really a bill that gets passed every year, and this was the appropriations bill authorizing the Michigan Natural Resources Trust Fund projects. Um, This was sponsored by Representative John Bumstead, who was the Michigan United Conservation Club's Legislator of the Year in 2015. Very good friend of Michigan's hunters and anglers. Absolutely. Um, And the trust fund projects... It's kind of actually kind of a special year because coming up in 2016, now it's going to be the 40th anniversary of the trust fund. And we talked earlier about how executive director of Michigan United Conservation Clubs was was a cool title. It was a guy that had that title before that was part of the compromise that led to that trust fund when basically MUCC and the Michigan Oil and Gas Association, as well as some other partners, compromised on some pressing issues to create the trust fund. Um, Dan, what's what's the theory of the trust fund? Where does that money come from? How does it help wildlife and the hunters and anglers in Michigan? Yeah, so just a little bit of just a little bit of quick history for folks. Um, in the nineteen sixty, you know, in the nineteen sixties, kind of leading into the early nineteen seventies, there was a lot of debate about the development of oil and gas 
um, resources on public land and how to kind of how to reconcile that and how to deal with that. Um, there's a lot of litigation. Um, there was not a lot of talking across the table um, from the folks who were interested in developing that resource and the folks who were saying, you know, public land exists for a different purpose. Um, and it was, you know, as Drew mentioned, kind of the result of a compromise uh, between the oil and gas industry and sort of the conservation, the conservation strain in Michigan led by MUCC that said, you know, if we're going to be extracting what is effectively a non-renewable resource in oil and gas, we should be converting the royalty interest that gets paid to the state for the development of those resources on state land for the acquisition and development of another non-renewable resource, outdoor recreational opportunities and outdoor recreational facilities. And that's what gave birth to the, what was called the Camera Recreational Land Fund, um, was the title of the legislation uh, that was passed in the mid-1970s, 1976. And then in 1984, there was a constitutional amendment that was made, spearheaded by MUCC, which memorialized the, the idea of the trust fund uh, in the state constitution and made some um, kind of baked in um, how the trust fund can be used, what, it, you know, the types of things that you can, the types of projects it can fund and so forth. So this year, um, the appropriation was about $24.7 million. It was 25 acquisition and 44 development projects. Um, it included additions to the Wigwam Bay State Game Area, the Barry State Game Area. And Logan, what, what time are we here in the podcast? We're at about 20 minutes. Guess where else it bought, bought some acreage? 20 minutes is about right. Yeah. Pigeon River Country. The Pigeon River Country. That's exactly where it puts some acreage. Actually, about 40 acres of Black River frontage, some of the best brook trout fishing that you're going to find pretty much anywhere that is now accessible to anybody who wants to fish it as long as they buy one of those fishing licenses. Um, the next package of bills that was passed um, came out of one of our 2014 uh, resolutions, and this was the drone package. Um, so, you know, when we talk about those crazy anti-hunters, um, remember a, cu a couple years ago, PETA talked about how they were going to basically send out a bunch of drones to harass hunters. Mm -hmm. um, so we passed a bill that said they can't do that in Michigan. Um, it was uh, Public Act 12 that was actually sent, sponsored by Senator Casperson, and that prohibits the use of unmanned aerial vehicles or drones to harass hunters, and that was tie-barred with another bill, Public Act 13, sent, sponsored by Senator Phil Pavlov, who's also sponsored a lot of great legislation for hunters and anglers, and that prohibits the use of drones for hunting and fishing, which is something that's they, they started doing out west, so some of the western states kind of took the lead. Um, you know, and this is where we talk about ethical hunting. You want to make sure that you're not, you know, just flying a drone right over an area and being like, oh, hey, there's a deer. I'm going to go there and shoot it. Um, you know, you got to actually hunt. And so this is a great package. I think it was a really balanced package. And we're saying, here's this new technology. We're going to get ahead of that technology. You can't use that technology to get an unfair advantage over the wildlife, but you also can't use that technology to harass hunters who are doing it legally either. Um, so that was a great piece of legislation based on an MUCC resolution from 2014. Now, the next one that came up was actually, we just had the bill signing on. Mm -hmm. um, and this was, it started off as House Bill 4239. Um, we talked about this a little bit uh, last week. 
and this was the safety zone and um, I, I call it the hunter access package because it also allows people to hunt from an assistive mobility device. Um, this was sponsored by Representative Charles Smiley and this became Public Act 185. The MUCC piece of this was eliminating the 150-yard uh, safety zone and we talked about this last week too but this really came from the Michigan Trappers and Predators Callers Association, Michigan Bow Hunters, um, and also actually the the Michigan Honey Dog Federation mm-hmm. as well. Um, Dan, were you up at that meeting in, in Clare? Yeah. Um, so tell us about a little, a little bit about the concerns that that safety zone was creating for some of these different types of, of hunters that we're talking about. Sure. Well, I'm sure you guys have talked about the background of the issue and how the safety zone um, evolved really before our, you know, archery equipment became popular in the 1970s and then became really popular from in the 1980s and, and beyond. Um, but this really came up as an issue, Drew, as you mentioned, from uh, Dale Hendershot and, and the folks at the Michigan Trappers and Predator Callers Association. Um, trapping in a riparian zone um, if you're going to trap for, I think beaver trapping was one of the issue, uh, kind of the the catalyst for this issue, um, because trapping is included in the definition of hunting. The the theory or the way that the way that the law was applied was a trapper um, was ticketed for not uh, obtaining permission from the landowners who fall within that 450-foot halo around the place where that individual was was trapping for beaver, even though they had permission to to trap on the property uh, where they were. Now, again, you know, the evolution of the safety zone was really before these kinds of conflicts, hunter-non-hunter, trapper-non-trapper conflicts, um, really kind of came out in the open and so forth. Um, so, you know, we were very happy to work with, with the Trappers and Predator Callers Association, a very strong, uh, long-time affiliate of Michigan United Conservation Clubs, to change the law um, so that if you had permission to trap uh, from, a, from a landowner, that was good enough, that you didn't need to go and talk to all the neighbors that fall within a 450-foot halo around that, uh, around that property. Could you imagine if that uh, person who sent the letter... To you, this like if that person had, let's say that person was your neighbor, <laughs> right. you would never be able to trap on your own property of somebody like that. <laughs> <laughs> I would immediately put my house up for sale. <laughs> um, well, and the other piece of that too is then uh, you know the uh, the archery side of it, um, the the idea that uh, you know if you're if you're fortunate, um, if you live where you have a couple of acres or just a couple of acres that you can hunt on, uh, or you just have a couple of acres around your property or on your house or, or whatever it might be, um, you can now archery hunt on your property. Um, where, where we live, we have just a couple of acres. We've got just under five acres. Um, the idea that I can now go and archery hunt in the front part of our property is really exciting to me because incidentally that's where all the deer happen to be. Um, <laughs> so when I sit in my tree stand in the backyard or in the back portion of our property, uh, watching all of the deer milling around uh, in the front, 
this is, you know, this is really going to be beneficial to me and to all, you know, every other person who wants to be able to archery hunt. Um, there's absolutely no danger whatsoever of certainly no danger of any of my arrows leaving, um, leaving my property. And, you know, again, it was just sort of an example of an antiquated law and antiquated provision and application of the law that just didn't reflect, you know, contemporary modern methods of take. Now, you, you actually got a deer off your property during firearm season, right? Nice I, doe? I most certainly did, yeah. That's right, because we already talked about my buck. We already talked about the bear that Logan missed. Just wanted to remind everybody that Logan, the bear slayer Schultz, missed a bear. Says you. You told me you missed the bear. And it's on film, so yeah. And it's on film, yeah. <laughs> but well, but let's get back to I, a how, successful how hunter, call, though. How do we call Logan the bear slayer when the evidence clearly points... Uh, well, we got to call somebody Bear Slayer, and nobody else in the room fits the category. So he's he's still I'm got bear some bear. He's still got some bear from the previous season in the yep. in the freezer there that I'm he's bear us next year. Nice, great. Best of luck to you, Bear Slayer. <laughs> not not with you. Let's get let's get back to to your deer though. Um, what'd you get? I shot a doe. I shot a two and a half year old doe. Great. Um, it was on the sixteenth. So Monday, the day after opening day of firearm deer season, uh, shot at about 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning or so. I set my pop-up blind in fairly close proximity to my house. And uh, my kids were eating breakfast, and I shot my deer. Made them dinner. Dragged it up to the <laughs> shed. And my wife said that, you know, it was the fastest that my kids have ever gotten their jacket and shoes on because they wanted to get out and see Daddy's deer. And the cool thing about that is my daughter, who's two, uh, came out and, you know, was like, well, Daddy, you know, Daddy, what is that? And, you know, I could say, that's where our food comes from. And, you know, being able to make my kids part of that story, help them understand that this is where food comes from uh, or this is where our food comes from is really important for, you know, driving home sort of that utilitarian use of these wildlife resources that we have. That's that's a great lesson for my kids to learn. Um, they can see that food doesn't come from a grocery store. Um, you know, our, I was able to harvest that deer off our property, and it's in our freezer, and we have enjoyed already lots and lots and lots of that deer. That's terrific. And you bought a license for that deer? Yes, yes, I buy all licenses. <laughs> well, and, and that's just a really clumsy transition to the next set of bills that, that, that we passed. Quite ham-handed, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> so the next set of bills that we passed was the anti-poaching package. And I guess what makes that transition even clumsier is that this package had pretty much nothing to do with deer. No. Because we actually passed a trophy, trophy poaching anti-trophy poaching bill, I guess, um, a couple of years ago um, that increased the fine if you're going to poach a white-tailed deer, especially an antlered white-tailed deer, it dramatically increased the fine. We've already seen a couple $10,000 plus um, restitution fees for poached bucks under that. That was actually a package that was um, partially sponsored by Senator Casperson as well. Um, but what this package was, was cracking down on poaching uh, pretty much all the other major species that there have been poaching problems for. So elk, bear, moose, waterfowl, 
uh, turkey included uh, increases in the poaching fine also for eagles and hawks so non-game species as well all right so that's like seven bills that mucc pretty much passed in 2015 that's more than some legislators mm, yes yeah that's not too bad no i mean you know look we've got we had a great year in the legislative front um First, the the first year of a two-year legislative cycle are generally going to be more productive than others um, because obviously as we make the turn into 2016, we're going to be in an election year and, you know, so just by virtue of the fact that some folks are going to need to be out campaigning and that kind of thing, there's probably less work that's going to get done. Um, but, you know, MUCC does a lot of other stuff other than just pass bills. We had uh, a great camp season this year. Um, for many of you, many of you know that we run uh, the Michigan Outdoors Youth Camp uh, down in Chelsea at the Cedar Lake Outdoor Center. We have 300, 350, 358 kids go through uh, our camp this year. We had a 95% pass rate on the hunter safety. Um, so these are kids who got a chance to come out, and uh, for some of them, they had a bow in their hand for the first time. They had a 22 in their hand for the first time. Uh, for some of them, it was the first time they've ever been in a canoe. Um, you know, just an incredible experience for people, um, uh, for these kids to get out and spend some time outside. Uh, it's a no, it's a no phone, no iPad, no device uh, zone. So we kind of cut the technology cord and. Kids learn how to play and play outside. I think a lot of us probably remember just sort of banging around outside as we were, you know, when we were kids. And, you know, I don't want to sound like an old fart who's like, well, we never did that when I was a kid, but, you know, we certainly have video games and stuff. But we played a lot outside when I was a kid. And it's important, I think, for for kids to see that nature is accessible um, and that there's a lot of wonder and entertainment that, you know, exists outside the door of their house. And that's what camp is all about, you know, re, you know, trying to reconnect or establish a connection with, with kids in the outdoors. Um, so we've got a really great camp season planned again um, for this year. Registration will be open in January. So if you have a child who needs a little bit more nature in their life or wants to refine some of their hunting skills, uh, their archery skills, needs to get their hunter safety certificate, send them our way. They'll have a great time. It's a week-long camp uh, at a historic uh, facility in the middle of the Waterloo State Recreation Area. So I want to make sure we talk about some of the other stuff that, that we do that, that folks maybe not aware that, that we do. And then, of course, we've also got on the ground in our stewardship program. Right, and, and, and actually this year we did uh, 20 projects. Um, brought on Sarah Top as our wildlife uh, volunteer coordinator who really hit the ground running. Um, I, was, I was talking to her earlier today, and she, she confirmed we had it over... 400 volunteers go out and volunteer on 20 different fish and wildlife habitat projects, you know, mainly on the weekends where you just have, you know, 20 people show up and say, hey, we're going to improve wildlife habitat today. Pretty much all on publicly accessible uh, hunting land or uh, fishing waters. Um, It's really an amazing um, program. It's an amazing job that Sarah's doing with it. Um, There's so many partners that kind of went into this, but this is funded by Michigan DNR Wildlife Habitat Grants. Um, so this is basically coming from hunter and angler licensed dollars. It funds the work that we're able to do and then recruit volunteers to help out with 
to improve fish and wildlife habitat. So it's part of that whole circle. Um, so we actually, we're actually having um, in January a chainsaw safety training here at the office. That's free for anybody to come out to. It's uh, part of a Myosha program with Chuck Osland. Um, I took it last year. It dramatically improved my chainsawing skills, which needed to be improved. Um, You're the reason we decided to start holding the chainsaw safety training, Drew. I'm going to take that as, as something to be proud of because okay. we had, <laughs> well, we actually had a great turnout. We had over 20 people come to, to the chainsaw safety training, including the guys that were working down um, with Tom Jones at uh, Michigan Operation Freedom Outdoors. Um, they came down. So if if my chainsaw ability <laughs> um, put out the, the idea that we needed to have a chainsaw safety class, um, a lot of other people benefited from that, so that's why we'll we'll take that as a good thing. Um, but we're having that class again. It's free. Um, just sign up. Go to mucc.org slash on the ground to sign up for it. Also this year, which is, I think, a really huge deal, is we completed the first full year of the Michigan Wildlife Cooperatives Program with Anna Mitterling. Um, hard to believe that it's only been a year. It seems like she's been here forever. She's been doing some great work. Um, and what she's been doing is just doing amazing work with over 90 co-ops around the state. Um, these are groups of private landowners that band together to cooperatively manage uh, land for wildlife habitat, particularly for deer and pheasants. Um, she's already hosted a deer co-op forum. Um, she's planning a pheasant co-op forum uh, coming up here um, in, in, in February. And she's been going all around the state just over the past couple of weeks Um holding uh, Farm Bill CRP sign-up events where landowners can come out and, and find out from uh, Farm Bill biologists and Anna and get information on how they can enroll their land in Farm Bill programs where they're conserving wildlife habitat and they're getting Farm Bill funds basically to be able to do that. So she's really done an amazing job um, not just running that program but pretty much implementing, starting, and creating that program, and we're proud to have her on board. I think the one thing that I would say, Drew, um we probably are going to bring this ship into port here, I would think, in just a minute or so, is that, you know, our ability to work on legislation, to advocate for conservation and natural resources, our ability to go out um, and do habitat and stewardship projects on public land, our ability to uh, organize and assist private landowners for, you know, as they're to implement and improve um, private land, wildlife habitat that benefits everybody. Our ability to educate hundreds of kids every year at our camp is due uh, only because we have uh, a tremendous membership for MUCC. Our members are deeply passionate about conservation. They are deeply passionate about hunting, fishing, trapping, uh, and outdoor recreation. If you are not a member of MUCC, come on in. The water's fine. We'd love to have you. We're so proud of all of our members. We want to wish everybody... A Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And and you'll be joining good company. Logan, we, we give Logan a little bit of grief here, but he's actually been doing an amazing job on the back end of our website. We can see, I don't know if you noticed, um, our members, we just eclipsed 48,000. That's awesome. Growing. Growing. So, you know, come join the fun. Um, support conservation. That's what it's all about. Go to MUCC.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the new year.
Thank you for listening to another edition of Michigan Out of Doors podcast. Defend your rights to hunt, fish, and trap by joining MUCC at MUCC.org.